0: Hey everyone, welcome to Resilience Unraveled. This podcast is a result of my fascination with subjects like resilience, accountability, burnout, life fulfillment, and other life and work based performance issues, as well as many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, people, and organizations, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories and expertise as well as my own synthesis of the key issues strategies tips tools and resources to thrive in life if you find this podcast useful why not go over to our site qedod.com if you'd like some resources on how to manage and beat burnout head to qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 for some goodies stay tuned to the end to find out details of how to order a free ebook enjoy the podcast and so today I'm talking to Lydia Denworth, an author, journalist, and speaker uh, based in the U.S., as I'm sure you're going to um, realize pretty well straight away. So it's, uh, what time is it here? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Hello, Lydia. Hello. And, it's lovely to talk to you. And what time, the, what time of the day is it where you are?
1: It is 10 a.m. in New York City.
0: Oh, I, 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 I can sense a song coming on. <laughs>
1: I'm not very good at singing, so no. Seriously?
0: Oh, and I was looking forward to it. I thought we were talking about singing today. Songs, <laughs> songs from Broadway.
1: <laughs> Alas, no.
0: Oh, well, good. Well, what we are going to be talking about today are um, some of your work, and, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and sort of your story?
1: Okay. I am a science journalist and author, and I have written three books of uh, popular science and uh and i i'm a contributing editor at scientific american here in the u.s and then i write for a lot of other publications um and i guess we can talk about maybe we talk about the books i'm not sure how much you want me to talk about all the books right now but um the ones that are most relevant to this conversation is that um I, uh, one is called I Can Hear You Whisper, and it's the story of my youngest son who is deaf and has a cochlear implant and um, a hearing aid, and it's all about my journey as his mother to figure out how to help him, and then, of course, since I'm a science writer, it I investigated how the brain processes sound and language and, and what it was going to mean, him and then I have another book coming out next year called Friendship the evolution biology and extraordinary power of life's fundamental bond
0: fantastic so wow so much to talk about already let's start about this description of yourself as a a popular scientist what what does that what does that mean popular
1: Mm -hmm. uh, popular science writer is what I is what I mean it just means that I write I write serious science but for a lay audience, you know? Right. I'm um I I'm not a scientist. In fact, the irony is that I was a history major. <laughs> I took ah. this as little science as was possible back in the day, but then I had a a bit of a career shift mid-career and I got really interested in in telling the stories of science and I find that Science is a story. The whole scientific process is a story of exploring ideas and testing them and seeing where they lead. And I find it really interesting and really important. And then, lo and behold, when my son turned out to have a uh, hearing loss, I kind of found myself at the front lines of a scientific story in my own life. So that's kind of
0: so and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, in, in a way, you have quite an important role at the moment. Because there's a sort of, there's a sort of anti-science theme running through ah, some parts is. of the world at the moment, isn't there? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yes, th- feelings are more important than facts. Mm.
1: Which right, feelings are great, but feelings are based in physiology and biology. Right. Exactly. To be totally honest, right, and in fact, we care, You know, you don't get to make the facts.
0: I think. Um, there's something, uh, something in the zeitgeist at the moment, isn't it, that somehow is, has created this idea that, that we shouldn't think about experts. Maybe there's an anti-expert drive. and I think, So I think your, your thing about being someone who can translate for people who are not scientists, some of the big ideas, because actually I think sometimes the scientific community doesn't help itself because they wrap themselves <laughs> in jargon, don't they, and it makes it difficult well, for non-scientists right. to understand.
1: No, that's very true. And I do see that exactly as my job as a translator and as something of a storyteller, as I said. But I also think that one of the issues is that, you know, science is actually, it is a process and it's always changing. We're always learning more. And sometimes that changes what we knew before, but it does make it, it's, it's not a neat and tidy process where one day you wake up and say, this is the truth. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, and, and to some extent that's by design. Mm-hmm. And and so but, – but we get – we move over time to really understanding more and to getting consensus. And so, for instance, on climate change today, 99% of scientists – Uh, I mean, there is absolute consensus that the climate is changing and that it is that that human beings are part of the problem, a major are the problem. Uh, But people are able to. There are there are a lot of ways of kind of tweaking what you find when you do a study and of, you know, resisting what you don't want to be true, calling it junk science when it isn't. And in fact, my first book, which I didn't mention, was about environmental science. And it was a dual biography of a scientist and a doctor who were among the first to understand that lead, the, the metal, was, a, was as harmful as it was. And this was back in the 60s and 70s. And the story is really about the evolution of knowledge, of uh, beginning to understand how things come out into you know in this case, how uh, a toxin can come out into the world and and make people sick yeah. and it's it's um and science moved on that subject over time, and you know so uh, people want certainty, they want easy answers, they don't like complexity um, and you know sometimes science doesn't match up with that so much
0: and it's fascinating, isn't it because I think sometimes uh, we often presume that science is about um, a battle between economics and money. But sometimes science, as you say, is about knowledge. It's about figuring out that pl- plastic was a wonderful thing until we actually realised that there was so much, we're finding it in places it was not meant to be. And the same with lead. I and mean, it's there's nothing the matter with lead per se, but it's when it begins to appear in the wrong places or be used for the wrong things. And I'm fascinated to hear more about the lead, lead, lead thing, because actually the book's called Toxic Truth, I believe. And, yes, um, exactly. So, you, so tell, me, tell, me, tell me a bit more about that, because I think actually, um, I mean, we in this country, have, um, we've had a, a big debate about lead and its effect on, um, from cars and such like, and, if, and, and the way it's been banned from uh, cars and emissions have been banned from being near schools and such like. But... So, Tell me,
1: tell me about how that worked out over in the U.S. Oh, it was a drama. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was really. There was a big fight. Basically, there was a fight between science and industry. But I do think what it was really about. It's it's a case study for how we deal, how we assess risk, how yes. we think about it. It's it's a case study for how we're now handling climate change or not. Uh, it's it is this. Um, what happened – I guess the, the the short version is that what happened here is that first uh, scientists and the the one that I feature in my book is a geochemist named Claire Patterson. And he was at Caltech and he was working on figuring out the age of the earth, actually dating the age of the earth. And I don't have time to go oh. into all the details, but it's fascinating about how he came to understand he was using – um, lead isotopes to do that. Uranium decays into lead, and he yes. was measuring this. And there was lead. There was so much more lead than there should have been. Mm-hmm. And basically, what he figured out was that lead had was everywhere in the atmosphere, and that it was contaminating the earth, and that it had exploded in, or the the amount of it had had hugely increased over the time from the Industrial Revolution, but then then also from the time that cars began using leaded gasoline and so he began he understood that it was it was everywhere in the environment and then uh, a doctor named herb needleman was the one who led the the work on understanding what lead might be doing to children's bodies at a lower level at a subclinical level so before for a long time People have known that lead is toxic for thousands of years. And if you get acute lead poisoning, you can have seizures and blindness and you can die. That's an obvious problem. Everybody recognized that. But mm. in even the businesses who created lead products recognized that. But understanding we, – we managed to, to avoid some of that. We needed to get rid of uh, – the worst of those kinds of cases, it's very rare for someone to have that kind of extreme lead poisoning today. But the problem is that now we understand that there is no safe level of lead in in the body and especially in children's bodies as they're developing and their brains are developing. And then lead gets in there and it, it kind of makes everything go a little bit haywire in children's cells and, and brain. And and so Herb Needleman was one of the first – These these two were not the only people, but they were among – those and they were at the forefront, and, and they were the most attacked by industry. Both of them were um, charged with all kinds of um, well. Needleman got called up on charges of professional misconduct, mostly at the behest of the lead industry, and so they really had to fight both for their findings and for their reputations. Yes. Uh, but you know, and so, but they were willing to do that, and that is where change comes from, I think, right? And uh, and the rest of the scientific world, the the knowledge coalesced around them, I guess you could say. And what happens there is epidemiology where you try to understand, you know, what's causing something in people. It's it's not an exact science, but if you get the same kinds of information from animal studies that lead is harmful and from environmental studies showing that there's all this lead and, and you know, more lead where next to the road, you were mentioning, you know, taking uh, that near schools, we need yes. to avoid things, idling engines and things like that. If you can see that there's higher lead and that, that those kids in those schools have higher levels of of, lead in their bodies and, and all kinds of things, you, you know, you can start to draw real concu- conclusions, and that is what has happened. And obviously, we've seen here in this country, I mean, my book actually tells a a pretty happy tale of this success because getting lead out of gasoline and paint and all these things was one of the great public health stories of the 20th century, <laughs> but unfortunately, we didn't finish the job, and there is still lead in pipes. And as we've seen here in Flint, Michigan, in the last few years, and as you're seeing, and it's and now people are understanding that you know we needed because the the cost of getting this last bit out has been is is a lot um, yes. out of old pipes and old houses and things like that. So anyway, um, the you know. The thing is though, it's there are people who say we shouldn't change anything until we are absolutely certain of the risk. And there's other people who say we can't we can't put things out in the world until we are absolutely certain of the safety. And so yes. it depends a bit on what your perspective is.
0: Yes. It's interesting. And I think part of the problem here is the resilience, the natural resilience of the environment, isn't it? Because we're we're so used to the world we live in bouncing back and we yes. don't really. St- yes. The thing is, what and, happens after the course of time? We just assume it's always going to be okay,
1: right? And that was way back in the 20th century that the 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 industry scientists who who were leading, they were the leading figures in the on or leading authorities on the effects of lead in the early part, early and mid 20th century, and they said, you know, it goes out of your car's tailpipe and it just dissipates and goes away. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's it. But what Patterson, the geochemist I mentioned, proved was that is not it at all. It stays here, you know, in the oceans and 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 in the and on the in the soil. And, you know, it's yeah. And it doesn't. You cannot do that forever, you just can't. There are long-term consequences. And that is, and I think you know, resilience is about preparing, it's about understanding what those long-term consequences will be and being smart enough to prepare now for what's coming and not just reacting on a short-term basis. You know, There's no problem today, even though, in fact, often there is a problem today, but you know.
0: And that's the problem, isn't it? It's about building capacity in the system to be able to bounce back in the first place. And, exactly. um, you know, that, that's it. I mean, we very rarely fix the roof in the good times because we're actually too busy enjoying the good times. And then we, 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 we're quite good in a crisis when there seems to be things
1: Bright. right in front yeah.
0: of us, which, which is great when you can fix something in five minutes. But the, the lead thing obviously has taken years and years to actually, well, as it's you said, and, it's still, not, and it's still not finished. Years. Yeah. yeah, right.
1: That's exactly right. And so, but that is something, I mean, we know what the solutions are. We know that, you know, if you don't expose children to lead, you know, they will be healthier. And Mm -hmm. that, and we know how to do that. It's just that it costs a lot of money and it's Mm -hmm. disruptive. Um, There are, of course, things that happen to us, like my son turning out to be deaf, that are completely unexpected. But, but there's a similarity in that, you know, you, then what do you do? How do you, how do you react
0: so tell
1: me. So tell me more about your son and his situation. Uh, well, he's sixteen now. He's a great kid, and um, but I had never met a deaf child before I had my own son, ah, and nice. uh, and so you know I, well, <laughs> I guess I would say that my my approach to the world is a little bit founded on my, my father had something he called he had a phrase called recovery technique that I think you would appreciate, um, yeah. which is his way of describing what, what you talk about when you talk about resilience and what a lot of us think about is that, you know, life is not just what happens to you. In fact, sometimes it's not re- really most importantly about what happens to you, but it's about what you do next yeah, and exactly. right? how you, how you move forward, how you respond. And so when I discovered that my son had, um, couldn't hear very well, there's a bit of a story about. It took a while to get um, to get clear answers about exactly what was going on with him, but and that, in some ways, complicated it. But but um, but also it meant that by the time we actually, he was clearly identified as having a. Mo- at the beginning, he had a moderate to profound loss in both ears. Now he's profoundly deaf in one and has a severe to profound loss in the other. But um, I. That it actually, to tell you the truth, it, it came as something of a relief because it was right. an answer, yes. right? And once yes. you have an answer, then you can yeah. act absolutely, <laughs> and yeah. then you can do things. I mean, it was also though it, it required, uh, you know, in this in the story of my own life, I I, I put that that the discovery of Alex's hearing problems as as you know as a traumatic experience, and people in the deaf culture will. Land-based me for that but i'm talking about how i experienced it and what it did is the same thing as the other sort of traumas i've had to go through in my life It 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 just upended everything in our lives about and how we thought life was going to go and yes. what we knew about how to raise a kid how to help him how to you know uh, what what would a happy, successful life look like? And it's entirely possible to have a happy and successful life as deaf people. Most people do, yeah. um, but I just didn't know it. I didn't. I wasn't familiar with that world. And I, as I said, I didn't know indi- any individuals or or the ones I did know were my parents' age with a hearing aid. Actually, the great irony is that most of my parents' friends were resisting getting hearing aids until they met my son with his uh, equipment and saw how well it worked for him. And they said, well, if Alex can do it, I should be out there getting a hearing aid too. So um, that was kind of fun that he had a positive effect on his elders, you could say.
0: Yeah, and, and it's interesting you say what you say because I don't think people, I mean, people, if they don't come across a disability, um, why, why would they expect to be able to, to cope with it? Why wouldn't you be knocked off track a little bit why wouldn't you think to yourself, oh goodness, how do I do this? Because how, how would you know? And actually, you know, I think part of the problem with, with some of these things is this idea that people judge you or, you know, lambast you for, for not knowing. Well, how, how, could, how could you have known?
1: Exactly, and one of but one of the things I set out to do in my book, which was I wrote several years later, um, you know, first my first co- I was already a reporter and a science writer. I'd already written the environmental book about lead, uh, and so my natural coping mechanism was to just start researching. And I had the great luxury of a feeling that I could call people up. I was used to calling scientists and experts up and asking them questions. And finding things on the internet. Um, The internet can be a help and it can be a horrible thing, right? (laughs) If you're you're in a crisis like this. But uh, anyway, I just started researching and, 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 you know, I didn't realize, now I say I realized that I was writing my book. From the get go, but I didn't think, I didn't know that for the first few years. And uh, so I was really just trying to learn everything I could learn so that I could understand and I could try to help him. But then a few years in, and when I did decide to write about the experience, and I was mostly interested in it as a science story, both as a memoir, but also as a science story, I thought I was uniquely positioned since I was both in the scientific world and the mother of a child with a cochlear implant. I was. you know, I had this front row seat to very cutting edge science, and mm. uh, I mean cochlear implants are the first time that we have taken technology and have been able in fact to reverse a major disability Now, let me say a cochlear implant does not make you a hearing person it right. the equivalent it 's the equivalent then of becoming more hard of hearing in, in in the world, but it allows my son to operate in the hearing world in in an astonishingly um, fluid way, and so so. Anyway, the um, but the but the thing is that then I also figured, wanted to understand why there was such resistance in the deaf community to this technology, and 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 a big part of the reason is that they they are upset by the science. Scientific approach to deafness or the medicalization of
0: it—the yes.
1: idea that it is a problem to be fixed—they um, think it's a di- you know they see it as a difference. And I and I I worked really hard to understand that and to understand where they were coming from. And that's one of the threads in my book is to sort of explore deaf cultural history and as a hearing parent to 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 sort of be honest about the. How I felt being dropped in the middle of this, and I'm used to thinking of myself as a extremely liberal, tolerant person, and it was hard to be on the other side. and um, And I've had people say that I've abused my child for putting a cochlear implant in him, but I don't agree. And I think the science is unequivocal. If you want a child to get spoken language fluently and then that leads to reading then they need that sound in the brain in their very early years of life.
0: Yes well there's the evidence in in terms of neuroplasticity that the brain screens out irrelevant things or things that it's not able to do or doesn't want so your ability to learn many languages is sort of prized down isn't it and so if you're not if you're not hearing sound one imagines that your capacity to understand the way sound works and I suppose the use of language could be compromised as well, could it?
1: Oh, it is. It absolutely is. And um, now, it's it's so language is compromised, but so is reading, because reading that. in the brain builds on the language networks that get laid mm. down first. And mm. now, it's important to point out that if you have beautiful if you have exposure to sign language from the get-go from a native fluent speaker then those language networks also get laid down and that works as a foundation but the problem is that the vast majority more than 90 percent of kids with uh, who are deaf and hard of hearing are born to hearing parents who who don't sign and you can learn to sign and i did learn some signing but it's never going to be the same as speaking fluently in your native tongue to yes. your child and teaching yeah. them language that it's way. It's a new language. So,
0: that's the basic problem there. Yeah. So. yeah, interesting. So, and I suppose the I mean, the, the cochlear implant thing is fascinating because there are examples of people who have been profoundly deaf all of their lives rejecting them, aren't they? And almost preferring Because of the the cacophony, and they do,
1: and that's and that is their choice. And uh, it's also true that if you've been deaf all your life and then you got a cochlear implant, it it will change some things, but it will never have the same effect as it had for a young child like my son. Um, It allows you access to some sound, but it doesn't really give you that boost in language and things like that that it can give a child. Um, But yeah, people, as I said, people live wonderful fulfilling happy lives um in the deaf world signing and and that's a beautiful it's actually a beautiful culture and community and language and i and i am actually very supportive of it except when they tell me that i can't make choices for my own child <laughs> yes no,
0: that, that's the thing about being a parent though isn't it i mean yeah it's a different thing altogether it's all very well represented yeah, the community exactly. but you're still a mom aren't you so that's part of it um i, I, I yeah, interesting i um i was going to ask you an extremely insightful and penetrating question there that dropped out my head so um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm glad about that
1: happens to you too that happens
0: <laughs> to I, me all the time and right? i suppose he'll have a choice when he's ready I, I know what i was going to ask you maybe not that great question but a a different one who who did you write the book for was it some people write books for themselves and some people write them for a community maybe the heart of you know the i don't know what the the precise phrase is people who are deaf or did you write it for parents of um, deaf children What, what was your thinking when you began this book
1: i i hoped it is certainly a book um and its most fervent audience is parents and also um teachers and audiologists who work in the deaf community with kids who use technology to hear and then to speak and listen. Uh, but I also, I hoped and, and to some extent have been gratified to see that the book has also reached a larger audience of people who, who, first of all, it's a brain development story in children. It's a, it's a really important sort of, uh, I hoped that people would better understand um, and not take for granted what goes on in the brain of kids who are hearing, because Mm -hmm. then I came to understand just how important all that was. And I had, he's my youngest of three. So I had been down this road. I'd you know, had two other kids learn to speak and to, and to read. And, and, and yet as a professional and well-educated person, there was so much I didn't know. So part of it is the brain development story, which is for a wire audience. And I also did want the wider, a wider audience to understand more about what, what the discussion in the deaf world about this technology, because again, I think it's a, it's a much, it's, it's a question that's like lead is a case study. This is a, Mm. this is about identity and technology and science and medicine and how we approach these questions. And, you know, people are going to come down on different sides and all I could do was kind of tell my story and my thinking, but also present the science. And I, I was very proud that a lot of people felt that my account of deaf culture in the signing world was very sympathetic and fair and balanced but I do feel very strongly that cochlear implants are one of the great inventions of our time and they have fundamentally changed my life and my and my son's life and I wanted people to to know about that but I wanted there's been there's been a bit of a there's quite a division I mean it's I think it's better now but you know there was the the signing deaf versus the oral deaf and it felt like you couldn't be, there was no bridge. And I mm. hoped to be a little bit of a bridge, but it's, that's not so easy to pull off.
0: <laughs> and it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, back to resilience. I mean, one of the reasons humans are resilient is that we're able, able to adapt to our world around us through the use of tools. And, yes. and in a sense, this is just a tool, isn't it? And you can get stuck on the ethical, moral, and sociological problems. But at the most fundamental level, that's what it is.
1: It, it, that's exactly right. It is a tool and it doesn't, I mean, my, it doesn't make my son a hearing person. He's a deaf person who uses this tool to yeah. access sound yeah. and that's a different, and, and hearing people do sometimes, you know, this is the thing of, um, where we talked about complexity earlier and, and how it, uh, it's, it's not like you're just, you just flip a switch and it's this miraculous thing, even though it is pretty miraculous because getting the, getting the sound into the brain and having it make sense was was quite a scientific feat, and yeah. it took a whole lot of time and effort. Um, but they got there in the yeah. end, and uh, and so, um, but yes, it's a uh, it's it's amazing to me how my I mean, brain plasticity is a is a story of resilience in itself, and that's oh, yeah. what I spend most of my time writing about. And is you know how my son's brain adapted to what his version of the world was and then because he uses a cochlear implant in one ear and a hearing aid in the other he actually gets different kinds of sound from those two things but it's all he's ever known and it's how he learned to yeah. talk and uh and so it works for him his brain works with that you know um, that's
0: absolutely fascinating isn't it it's, and it's something to it, it's tricky when you have all all of your senses as opposed to understand the losing one i think there's a guy called david Meag- Eagleman who i'm sure you've come across in terms of the media have, science yes. research and he talks about the umwelt which is the sort of worldview that like dogs as umwelt as their sense of smell and actually as human beings we sort of tend to balance visual auditory cues more i think so to lose hearing must be you can't you can't imagine it but i suppose if you've always had a lack of hearing your son in a sense i mean i wonder if he misses what he didn't know he ever had if, if that makes sense, no, right?
1: Well, he he cannot experience the world any way other than he yes, has. Exactly. Uh, he, but I. But um, the thing I was going to say though is that the thing about deafness that was so important to understand is that for for centuries we treated deaf people terribly, and they had no way of communicating. They were shut off in a way that now blind people have a lot of trouble with mobility, but they can communicate, they can talk to people. Mm -hmm. And so everyone thought that deaf people were, were mentally challenged. They were stupid. They couldn't, they were uneducable, all those things. None of that is true at all. Um, and it's all, but you know, sign languages were this, uh, you know, were sort of, um, they were homemade, I guess you could say, in w- way back. And then it began in France um, a couple hundred years ago to become something different. And, and, I mean, interestingly, one of the reasons cochlear implants were such a touch point, such a controversial development was that they came along. It was a perfect storm. They came along in the world right as the deaf movement, the deaf civil rights movement was sort of flowering and flourishing and ASL, American Sign Language here, but I'm also in Britain and everywhere else. Um, And every country has its own sign language, by the way. I'm not sure people always know that, often they don't. But, uh, But sign language was being given the respect it deserved as an actual language. And so it was, so that was all happening. And then cochlear implants were coming along in this other in and suddenly changing um what was possible technology wise but not everybody um you know people didn't think it would work that was one problem it was yet another medicalized solution Uh, but the thing is it does work so um, that's the 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 takeaway (laughs) in the end is it but it does work
0: and i mean without being too glib about it i mean um in order to have great relationships and friendships, sound and hearing is just so important. So I'm, I'm interested to know how you went from, uh, went into a book about friendship as your next yes. subject.
1: <laughs> yes, well... I was covered so by that second book uh, I can hear you whisper really did take me into covering the brain and I got really fascinated by brain neuroscience psychology things like that and so I was after I finished that book I was casting around what did I want to do next uh, in addition to my freelance writing and I got interested in a field called social neuroscience which is which was is a relatively new field and it, it is really looking at the social aspects of how we interact in the nice. brain and, and physio- the physiology of our interactions with other people. And I just found it fascinating. And then kind of while I was sitting there one day at a conference listening to this stuff, I thought – I was at that moment where, at that point, my kids were teenagers and going off, beginning to go off to college, and my mother unfortunately suffers from Alzheimer's disease. I'd already lost my father, and I was, uh, you know, I have a wonderful husband, but I thought, oh boy, I better get on it and make sure I'm spending time with my friends.
0: <laughs> it yeah, was as, cool
1: as that yeah. because you know my life was changing, and and who was in it, and who was in my inner circle, and I've always had good friends, but but I was interested friendship is getting really newfound respect in the scientific world and sci- the kinds of scientists like neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists who didn't ever used to study it now study it. Yes. And and now they even can kind of say, yes, we study this. And they can hold their heads up high and not be embarrassed about it. And <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, there was a time where there was an article maybe 20 years ago that somebody published in a scientific journal called um, you know, using the F word of primatology, and she meant friendship, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. so, you know, can we talk about this as as a serious scientific subject? And, um, and, but what is true from a resiliency point of view is that, I mean, friends, it's the most important, re- I think it's a template for all other relationships, because what they have found now is that the the And it's across species, which is how we know it's evolutionary. But so, um, in baboons and rhesus macaques and in people, those with the strongest bonds live the longest. And, and in, the, in the animal world, in the monkeys and apes, they have more reproductive success, which is a fundamental measure of evolution, of natural selection. And so, it's the strongest bonds and monkeys and i mean baboons and macaques tend to hang out with family but when they don't have family nearby they work to build relationships with with non-relatives and yes. and it's kind of the exception proves the rule that you need to have a a core a core group of individuals that you can count on in a crisis um, and it's, it's the foundation
0: of community isn't
1: it it's and the foundation of community and it's not to say that that we are you know it's not I worry sometimes that people will think that I'm I'm being very mercenary about friendship but I'm it's so much deeper than that it's the reason we do it is so that we have these these bonds that we can call on when we need them but you You wouldn't enjoy all the time you spend with your friends building up to that moment if it wasn't rewarding. And, you know, the brain rewards us for things that um, that it wants us to repeat. Now, you know, sometimes that doesn't work out with addiction and things like that. But with friendship, it's it's the critical it's why it's fun to uh, hang out with your friends. and, And we all get
0: it, don't we? Because actually some of us have had friends for life and partners for months. And, yes, <laughs> you know, it's, it out, And you often find some of your best friends are with you. I mean, it's great if your par- partner is your best friend and all that sort of stuff, but often not. And I think, well, it's, and I think, the, and I think, sometimes the pruning of friendship in a relationship is one of the most dangerous signs about the negative aspect of a of the power right. play within a relationship.
1: And I'm glad you brought that up because that's when I said that I think of friendship as a template for relationships. I'm talking about the strongest friendships are if you think about the people that you the friends you're closest to, those relationships if you strip them down to the simplest things and uh, they are positive, they make you feel good, right? They're usually very long lasting. Or they, there's stability in them, and there's some reciprocity or cooperativeness in there. So yeah. it's even if you help out for a while, then someday you know your friend will return the favor. And you know, sometimes it's as simple as I had you for dinner. Now you take mm-hmm. have me. And then sometimes it's you know, you've lost uh, your mother, and or you've you know you're in a crisis with your child, and I'm here for you. And um, and that template when we call our spouse or our our romantic significant other or a sibling, a friend, we do it to, to, signal something about the quality of the relationship, right? Just calling, saying husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or or whatever it is doesn't actually tell me anything about the quality of the relationship. I I hope it's good, (laughs) but it might not be, right? Whereas if you say that this person is my best friend, I know something about the quality of that relationship. And what they have found is that the quality of relationships is the most important thing in terms of giving you that resilience that you need and getting you for your health. Literally, it shapes your biology Mm. and affects how long you're going to be on this planet. And isn't
0: it interesting how, as a concept, it's something we all get, we all treasure, we all understand. There's very little real research into it, so I'm really pleased you've done this. Well, there
1: is actually now. That's the thing, though. I'll just say, I I don't want to cut you off, but um, we think we understand it but there's so much more that we don't. So that's what my book is, to show you all that you didn't realize that yeah. you didn't know about friendship. But anyway, what were you going to say? You know, I was going to
0: say this. Uh, and what I find interesting is the fact that we get it right across the generations. So you'll hear kids talking about BFFs. and right. and, and they get that, don't they? And and, yes. and it doesn't matter what age you are, this concept of friendships. And my, my point was, I was going to, I suppose, to say we've spent too much time talking about relationships as a sort of research area rather than friendships. Are so really... I, you might have heard a little bit of clicking. That was me joining your mailing list because I know this. Book, oh,
1: excellent! <laughs> I know this book isn't ready
0: to release yet. So tell me, tell, tell me. Um, so let's go through some of the so the books. Let's go from start to finish. So the friendship book. When, when is that coming out?
1: So it will be out in the U.S. on January twenty eighth, twenty twenty, and it will be out in the U.K. Uh, I believe in March. The uh, right now they're saying March eighteenth or nineteenth, but. Um, so i think that will be around then so you already and have one
0: sale because i've just put myself down for that. so that's good isn't it beautiful thank yeah. you i love that and where, um, and, and where can we find i can hear you whisper in toxic truth
1: on amazon wherever books are sold basically well that's not entirely true in the uk but on amazon and um and the other uh real ta- uh you know online real ta- retailers you could find it and uh both of them and And, yes, you can keep up with my work on my website, LydiaDenworth.com. I have a newsletter that goes out only about once a month, and I promise it's full of really interesting work and the things that I'm doing. A little little behind the scenes, reporter's notebook stuff um, sometimes, too.
0: Excellent. And you've got a very fascinating blog as well, I have to say. So I've uh, been um, shopping through your blog earlier as well. Some really interesting.
1: Yes, I write a blog yeah. for Psychology Today. I should have yeah. mentioned that. Um, it's called Brainwaves. And I pretty much get to write about whatever interests me. I write a lot about new neuroscience, but I also write about friendship and connection and the, the science and biology of it. Yeah.
0: You and I are writing about some very similar things. So We must talk about that later on but, um, after yes. this podcast. So. Yes. So Lydia, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. And let me just um, just confirm that for everybody. LydiaDeadworth.com is the website and Amazon has all of those books. And um, I'm certainly looking forward to that friendship book. So thank you for spending time with us today, Lydia.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You take care. You too. Thanks for listening today. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash podcasts and subscribe to hear other titles in our series. Or you can contact us at info at qedod.com to hear and find out more about tough love, leadership, accountability, resilience and burnout. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash burnout2019 to hear and get access to a load of resources to help you manage and fight build and you can go to qedod.com forward slash free ebook to hear more about the fundamentals of resilience until the next episode keep on thriving